0: I want to invite you to take your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 37. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, bring some clarity. Uh, It is neither by intent or accident that we're on week two of a series on God's sovereignty and suffering as we pray for students and teachers going back to school. Those things were not uh, related in the preparation, Um, but under God's sovereignty, here we are. Uh, so, Genesis chapter 37, and this morning we're going to, uh, here in week two, go back to the beginning of this part of the narrative where we began last week at the end to sort of lay the foundation or the, the framework, if you will, of this part of the scripture where uh, we have the narrative of Joseph, him coming to the end of all of the trial and the things that, that occur in his life. In coming to the statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Recognizing that all that he had endured, God was not only present, but God was being very purposeful. And I pray that this morning, above all things, that God is glorified, but also that we would be encouraged as we see some truths that we can glean and promises on which we can lean or rest Because the same faithful God that is at work in Genesis 37 is the same faithful God that is at work in our present. It was also the same faithful God that was at work in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and then before and all the way through the end of the book through eternity. So there's consistency and continuity that we can see and I pray that this morning that we'll be encouraged because the grand probability is that in our gatherings this morning, there's someone who, uh, who is currently enduring some sort of trial, some sort of suffering of, of some degree. We looked last week at the reality that while not all suffering is punitive, it is always purposeful. It's not always because of something bad that we've done, but people suffer for any variety of reasons. Sometimes it's the result of sinful choices of your own, or sometimes it's the result of sinful choices of others. Sometimes the purpose is clearer, and other times it's more vague. But I pray this morning that regardless of where we are in that process, and regardless of how clear God's purpose as being that we will be encouraged this morning by the truth that we have from God. And so I want us to, to be reminded as we go back and work through this narrative that Joseph, while important, is not the main character of this narrative. Joseph is one of the primary players through whom God acts and upon whom God acts, but he's not the primary actor or the main character of this text. He's not, his father is not, his brothers are not, Potiphar is not, Pharaoh is not, God is the main character of this text. And so as we work our way through these narrative portions of the Bible, very often we, we naturally sort of tend to drift towards focusing on a character or a couple of characters, and we miss the larger point of how do we know God better through this text? What do we learn about God through this text? How do we walk more intimately with him through this text? And so as we read and we come across Joseph's name quite a bit, let's remember that Joseph is not the main character of this text. But we ask the question of what do we see about God in this particular portion of his word? What do we learn about him, about his character, about his work, about his purpose, about his glory in and through his people? And so with that, let's look at the context that we have in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to work our way through the narrative and then we're going to move from that to some New Testament truths that we can see as a result of the questions that are asked. In chapter 37. Chapter 37 verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age and was pasturing the flock with his brothers. While he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. You may want to pay particular attention to that. Several times through this chapter, there's a little sentence that's placed on the end of of what we would see as a verse that is brief but yet vitally important. Number one, Joseph brought back a poor report about his brothers. And now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Strike two. Bad report. He's the favorite. And and Jacob apparently has no issue with trying to hide that he's the favorite. He actually makes him a coat and that displays that he's the favorite. And so daily, the brothers are reminded of his preeminence and their lack to where they can't even speak to him on friendly terms. Family dinners had to be just a joy in that household because I felt like he would wear this coat every day and he brings it into dinner every night. And the moment he walks into the room, the environment changes. You would think that would be difficult enough, but that's not the end of chapter 37. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He's the favorite. They can't speak to him on friendly terms. Now he has this dream, and their hatred for him intensifies. And he said to them, please listen to this dream that I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, Your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Strike whatever we're on, whatever number we're on, three. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you going to really rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so they hated him, then they hated him more. And now they hated him even more. And so naturally he has another dream. And so, Lo, he still had another dream and related to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, I would love to have seen their facial reactions when he said that. You know, if they're an eye roller in the group, this is the place for one. We already hate you enough. But now he's had another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. They hated him, they hated me more, they hated me more, now they're jealous of him. They already couldn't speak on friendly terms. I can't imagine their tension. In, in their relationship at this point. And now they're openly envious of him. Now, just for context, we, we walk through this part of the text because for some this may be very familiar and for others this may be the first time you've ever heard this. But this is the beginning of what God is going to use in his sovereignty to fulfill a promise he made way back in the first part of the book of Genesis. Because as we talk about context, we need to understand something about the flow of the narrative portions of the Scripture. These are not disconnected, unrelated passages of Scripture or stories or narratives that that have no meaning or connectivity to one another. Because if we just pull these passages out randomly like this, there's, there's some principles that we can glean, but it's better to look at each of these narrative portions in the larger picture of the Scripture because you might be thinking, why in the world does all of this have to happen to Joseph? And then at the end of the narrative, Joseph say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What good could this possibly have meant other than to save this one family? And if it's just one family, that's a valid question, but it's not just one family. It's the family and the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons which pushes you back further into the book of Genesis, back into chapter 12 and chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham to make him a father of multitudes and gives them promise of of land that will be inherited to them. And and there's the, the Abrahamic promise that comes and the covenant that comes. And so we find in this engagement with Joseph and his family and his brothers, all of this under God's sovereign hand to fulfill the covenant he made back here with Abraham that is as a result of the fall that happens all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because sin entered the world and from that moment on, God began a process, a, a work of reconciling all things to himself. By calling out a people that through this people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we know ultimately that is filled through Jesus the Messiah. So when we understand context, it's not just God making Joseph go through difficulty for some just random unrelated purpose. No, this is all part of God working in his redemptive history to reconcile all things to himself And to preserve for himself a people. Because if you get to Genesis chapter 50 and you run out of Genesis on into Exodus, you see that there's going to be a few more people that come from this family that begin to populate the place of Egypt. To the point where they're difficult to number. And then there's a king that arises that doesn't know Joseph. All of this within the context of God's faithfulness to keep the covenant that he made to Abraham. That through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The context matters because this is not just some random story about a random guy. This is all part of God's work to bring about his glory by reconciling all things to himself. And ultimately, that will be done through the book of Revelation on into eternity. So as we see this in this context, we understand what more of what's going on. But in this particular part of God's work, God gives Joseph dreams. God gives Joseph dreams, of uh, pictures of what's going to come. What's going to come in and through his life. Now, he doesn't have all of the details filled in between the time the dreams happen in Genesis chapter 45 through 50 when the things start to make sense. But about 22 years have gone by in that time. Because here it says he's 17. And then as you walk through the timeline, they're about two years into the, the... seven years of famine. So that gets us to about 22 years by the time that Joseph has the dreams to the time that things start to make sense. And through that time, all the way through this part of the narrative, from the time that he is betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit, as chapter 37 continues to unfold the story, where his brothers are are out tending the sheep and, and Jacob sends Joseph out to give them a report. And you know how well that went over the first time. And if you look in the book of Genesis there in chapter 37, they see him while he's a far way off. Why could they notice him from a far way off? Even if they didn't know him, they know how he dressed. And they say, here comes that dreamer. I've got an idea. Let's kill him. Enough of this guy. Let's see how his dreams work out now. And then the voice of reason comes. Reuben says, Let's not not kill him, let's just throw him in the pit. I like the pit idea, let's just not kill him. Now you might think, Oh, Reuben's a good guy. Reuben's not a good guy. If you go back a few chapters before this, Reuben defends his father by taking one of his concubines. And in verse 30, Reuben's going to play his hand because when he realizes that his other brothers have taken him out of the pit and sold him, he comes and finds him and he's grieved and he says, what, is, what am I supposed to do now? If he was really concerned about his brother, he wouldn't have been thinking about himself. So the brothers have the idea, let's, let's throw him in the pit. And then while Reuben's off, they see the band of, of traitors coming and they sell Joseph into their hands. And at the very end of that part of the narrative, it says, and they took him to Egypt. Another little phrase on the end of a verse that is a hinge on which this narrative goes. They take him to Egypt. You get to the end of the chapter and it says that the traders sold him into Potiphar's house. So in one chapter we go from the favored son who's been given dreams, sold, betrayed by his brother, separated from his family, sold into slavery in a place that's not his home. And in all of that, God is still faithful. You might say, Brian, that seems very counterintuitive. But as the narrative continues, you get to chapter 39. Chapter 39 is bookended with expressions of God's faithfulness. Chapter 39, he's serving in Potiphar's house. And it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And he gave him favor. And Potiphar's house is favored and and grows and is blessed because of Joseph's presence. And it's going really well until it doesn't. And when it doesn't go well, it really doesn't go well. And he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. And at the end of chapter 39, while he's in prison, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. He begins taking on responsibilities there in prison. So we're bookended in the midst of his suffering with God was with him. God was with him. So what we know in the expressions of God's faithfulness through this text up to this point is that God gave Joseph's dreams and he is with him. But we might rightly answer the question, what enabled Joseph for 17 to 20 years to live in the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering? Because even when things were well, he had still been betrayed by his brothers and he was separated from his family. He was not with his people. He was not in his home. So in the midst of all of this, what did he rest on? He rested on what he had been told and he rested on the character of God. So for us as New Testament followers of Jesus, Do we have to wait around to have a dream when we're in the midst of suffering? Boy, I hope not, because I dream weird stuff. Now, I asked the 830 service, none of them say they'd ever had a dream. Have any of you ever had a dream? Oh, good, most of us, okay. When I am stressed, I might say trial, suffering. When I feel like I'm teetering on the the edge of losing control of things, uh, I very often dream that my teeth are falling out. Does anybody else have that dream? couple of you, yeah, yes, I see that hand, yes, I see that hand. Sometimes I dream that I'm falling. Not like out of a plane, I just dream that I like trip. And, and I, I tend to, to jerk or flinch and hope that I don't whack, hang me. We have something more sure than hoping we have a dream. Do I believe that God spoke through dreams in the Old Testament? Yeah, he did right here. He also spoke through a donkey, a burning bush, sometimes through people. What what, what do we do? When we're in the midst of trial, do we look for a a burning bush? Do we look for a donkey? Do we look for a dream? Do Do we look for the pillar of fire or the cloud? We have promises from God in his word on which we can lean when we are in dealing with suffering. So while God gave Joseph's dreams, he gives us promises. While he gave Joseph's dreams, he gives us promises. And so I want us to push pause in Genesis and move over to the book of John and we're gonna look at just a couple places because this is not an all exhaustive examination of all the promises of God but just in the midst of trial and suffering some things that we can lean on that are we that we know are true because they are promises from God through his word so John chapter 14 Jesus is speaking to his disciples in this context because they're about to engage in some pretty stressful, trying times of suffering. They've walked with him for three years and now the time is coming for him to uh, be crucified and to be resurrected and to depart, to, be, to ascend to the Father. So he's celebrating Passover one last time with his disciples. And at the end of chapter 13, there's this wonderfully encouraging conversation between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him. Not once or twice, but three times. So he's gathered with his disciples. He's having this part of the conversation. And in chapter 14, Jesus looks at his disciples and bookends this part of the conversation with this exhortation, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Scholars tell us that there are 365 times in the Bible that something like this is said, either do not fear, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, or don't let your heart be troubled. 365 times. It's almost like we need to hear it more than once. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Just as you believe in God, believe in me. For in my house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Now I'll go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way and where I'm going. (laughs) I don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? I am the way, and the truth, and the life. I am the way. Let not your heart be troubled. Now I realize that we're talking about the promise of His presence in the midst of Jesus preparing them that He's going away. That that might seem a bit ironic, but He said, "Let not your heart be troubled." Because I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And We know that just at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. But There's this promise of his presence that comes in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus continues in chapter 14 to talk about the helper who will come. Now, I realize it's sort of rude to interrupt Jesus in the middle of a thought, but we're going to. We're going to move on down into the middle of chapter 14. So, he promises his presence in that he is going to prepare a place so that where we can be, he can, or we can be also, because he's going to receive us unto himself. But in the meantime, he's still with us, even though he's not physically with us, he's with us through the indwelling and the abiding of the Holy Spirit. So if you move further down through chapter 14, we can begin in verse 14, or no, 13, 12, go back. Let's just just go back to verse two. It's hard to interrupt Jesus in the middle of a thought. No, we we got down to verse four. So in verse five, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you would not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen the Father, or he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on the account of the works themselves. But truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he also do. And greater works than these he shall do because I go to the Father. So now we're talking about causation of why he's leaving and then what's going to happen after he leaves. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides you, and the last phrase there, and will be in you. So in the promise and the fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit, because we can move ahead and look in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls and rests and and dwells believers, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, is like God's promissory stamp on us to fulfill everything that he said for those who believe. He's not merely with us, he is in us. And so when we encounter trial and suffering, very often we respond emotively to things that are responding based on feeling, not on truth. Case in point, often when we're encountering trial, we say, I I feel so alone. I'm, I'm completely alone in this. Well, if we're a follower of Jesus, we're not. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, before you think I'm being overly critical, I'm not. Because we have emotions, we have feelings, and we may feel particular ways, but very often feelings will try to scream louder than truth. And so when we have these feelings of of, uh, of isolation, of loneliness, of being alone, of nobody's ever suffered like this before, nobody knows how I feel, nobody knows these things, we've got to pump the brakes on that and let Scripture speak to that. Because this is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. So keep your place there in John 14. We're going to come back to that. But look in Philippians chapter 4 for just a moment. Paul writing in the context that he has endured suffering. So the say that in the middle part of chapter four, but before these writes that, he gives this encouragement in verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So when we're in the midst of trial and our emotions are screaming very loudly, we are called to let our mind dwell on things that are true. So a good way to do that is, okay, I'm feeling this feeling like I feel like I'm alone. Okay, is it true? Well, what does the Scripture say about that? Because we have not only God is with us, God is in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So God is with me. What else has he said about that? He said he would never leave me or he will never forsake me. What does the scripture say that is true? What are the promises of God that are true? Matthew chapter 28, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We always put that in the context of discipleship and that's rightly done, but it is a promise of God's presence with us. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. John chapter fourteen. He will be. This is the one who will be with you forever. You're not alone. Not only are you not alone because you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a follower of Jesus, but you're also put in the company of other people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. We call that the church. When the religious leaders asked Jesus, "What is the most important commandment?" He said, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it: love your neighbors as yourself." Upon these two things depend the whole law and the prophets. In the New Testament, we're called to bear one another's burdens, and it says, "And thus fulfill the law of Christ," referring to when Jesus said, "The second commandment is like it: to love your neighbors yourself." Not alone, we have a church family, but here's here's the the awkward part. That's going to require me to be authentic. And Brian, I'm just not interested in that. Because if I'm authentic, what will people think? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to get over that fear this morning together. I'm going to put this microphone right over here. And I am going to invite us, starting with this side, to all come up to the microphone and tell our biggest burden, our biggest suffering. Can I good with that. All right. I'm not, I'm not asking us to do that. If you're a guest with us today, I would never ask you to do that, never. Because I understand the anxiety that when I said we're, this idea of community and bearing one another's burdens and being authentic, some of you just, let's just stay with being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, it's just me and Jesus. I understand it's hard but we did this video about groups today where I'm not asking you to bear your burdens in front of 200 people but maybe just with two we do groups not to give you one more thing to do but to give us community to live life together because God's promised his presence with us and he's promised his presence with others and our communal relationship with him that, that we are united with one another through the faith in Jesus and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that makes us a community of faith where we can bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Where none of us have to bear burdens alone. We're wired for a community and that community may start with just a couple people and that's Okay. But I don't want anyone in this room this morning to feel discouraged that if you're in the place of trial, that you're doing it by yourself or that people don't care. The, the part of the rub is that is that you're being cared for by imperfect people that don't care perfectly. But we all share that together. So God's presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that unites us with one another, but also He gives us His peace. If you move towards the latter part of John 14, remember I said we'd come back here. Talking about the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will teach all things and bring all things to remembrance. And then Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Again, bookending this part with those exhortations. It's not an absence of conflict, it's not a promise that the circumstances will be better but peace in the midst of trial and circumstance Shalom Irene is the Greek word for the Hebrew word It's a sense of being settled. Being settled in unsettled circumstances. And it's not from us. It's not from our ability to endure well. It's his faithfulness. So God promises his presence, his peace. God also promises his power. Acts chapter 1, we're told that We receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That power is not just in service, but also just in our own discipleship. Because if you go back to Philippians chapter four, after that part about thinking on things that are true, Paul talks about the fact that he knows what it's like to get along with difficulty and good circumstances and bad circumstances. I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. Then you get to verse 13, he says, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Very often in the midst of our trial or suffering, our our heart and our feelings may cry out, I can't do this anymore. Or I can't do this. I can't do this journey anymore. And that may be very realistically how you feel. But I want that feeling that emotion to rest under the truth of the Scripture that says you're not alone. But as a follower of Jesus, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You're connected to a body of believers. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of people who on the backside of suffering say, I don't have any idea in the world except Jesus how we got through that. I'm like, then you have exactly the idea how you got through that. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we also have the gift of knowing that God is at work in his purpose and plan. We see that in Joseph's life. So we come back now to Genesis chapter 35. We went through the context of how God is being faithful not only to Joseph in the midst of his trial, but also to keeping his word that he made to Abraham because of what comes in the first part of the book of Genesis. So God's faithfulness in his purpose and plan, not only on a personal level of his work in us, and our own discipleship, and our own sanctification, to make us more like Jesus and less like us, as God shows favor and being with Joseph, but also in the larger kingdom perspective. So our our suffering, God is at work in our life to make us more like Jesus, but he's also at work in his kingdom because his kingdom work is not yet finished. And he invites us into it. We talked about James chapter one, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, not just so that we would be complete, but so that we are complete To do the task that God called us to do. So we don't have to wait for dreams. But rather we can rest in the truth. Of what God tells us in his word. That we can endure trial well. Knowing that he is with us. That he is in us. That he's given us the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, but he's also given us the fellowship of his people and that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Let's pray together. Father God, help us. Life is difficult and suffering is hard and unpleasant when it comes to us all. And Lord, I pray that today you will encourage your people with a reminder of your presence, your indwelling, your peace, your power. But Lord, also I pray that you will continue the good work that you've started in your people here at Stewart Heights, that you will continue to build us into a true community of family, that love and care for each other well. And Lord, as we prepare to go today, thank you that you go before us, that you go with us. And Lord, as we go this afternoon to celebrate baptism, we look forward to celebrating with our brothers and sisters as they profess their publicly through baptism. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the time as you will that we will have this afternoon. Lord, help us to love you and to love each other well to the glory of Christ. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.